In Colossians chapter 3, we'll be reading the first four verses. And we begin there in verse 1. Paul says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We, uh, over the last three weeks, we've been teasing out that theme, a tree without roots cannot bear fruit. And we've been talking about the different ones as the church body. And God, we have observed, wants us in our lives to bear fruit. He wants us to be fruitful. It is in the bearing of fruit that Jesus said we become His disciples. In fact, He said, that branch that does not bear fruit is cut away and bundled up and tossed out into the fire. He has, through those root systems, enabled us and equipped us to bear fruit. We ought to consider what is the fruit of our lives. What does the fruit of God in our lives look like? And so this morning, I want to begin looking at the fruit-bearing Christian life. in his literature in the New Testament. And a significant theme that Paul teases out in various places is this theme of life in Christ, or life in the Son, or life in Him. And he uses that various forms of that phrase, that prepositional phrase, throughout his writings. But a couple of places that we find it significantly used are here in Romans 6. Therefore, alive to God in Christ. And he even makes the plea to the Romans, how in the world can you continue in it? He says... Not only have you died to sin, you've become alive to God because you are in Christ. Paul makes a similar, but uh, perhaps even more graphic, if you could get more graphic than that, perhaps even more graphic uh, argument in Ephesians 
chapter 2, specifically in the first 10 verses, but even following there, he, he kind of teases this out a little bit. He says that we have been made alive in Christ. And he says we were once dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins, just like the world. You were dead. And God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive in Christ. He has given you new life. He has raised you up. He even uses the language that He has seated you in the heavens with Christ. Baptism, it's not just a metaphor. I don't want to downplay baptism. I, I, I think I played it up fairly significantly last week. Um, but baptism is, is, is offered to us as a metaphor for this new life. It's not just a symbol. But as a symbol, it reminds us whether we are washing or whether we are burying through immersion, we are reminded that we are given new life in Christ. It is a mark that can never be removed. I think I mentioned last week, no one can be unbaptized. You can not yet be baptized. You can renounce your baptism. You can walk away from it. You can break that covenant. You can live as though it never happened. But you can't be unbaptized. It's a mark that can never be removed. And as that, when we live apart from our baptism, when we live outside of that covenant we made with God, that baptism haunts us. It reminds us that we are the covenant people of God and we're not living like it. I, um, when we baptize people here, we give them a, a certificate of baptism and it comes in a nice little iron frame. And um, specific, Specifically for the young, I, I encourage them to Put a, it's a double frame. I encourage. I wish I brought it. I've got it sitting in the office over there, but um, that'd have been a perfect illustration just to hold up for you. But it's got two little uh, two little places: one for the, the certificate and one for a picture. And specifically, uh, when we're baptizing babies, at least we uh, we encourage folks hang this up in the nursery, hang this up in the kids' room, remind them of what happened, remind them that they are the people of God, they are in a covenant. Baptism reminds us that we are given life in Christ. That we have died. Our former selves are no more. We have died and we have been made alive in Christ. And so this life in Christ, this Christian life, what is the fruit that it bears? What, what does this fruit-bearing Christian life look like? It is, first of all, a life that is self-evident. I'm not going all Declaration of Independence on you. Bear with me here. Yes, I'm using that, borrowing a phrase there that's a pretty, pretty well-known phrase. But this life is self-evident. 
I looked up the term self-evident. It is one term because it's a hyphenated word. Um, and it means that, that something evidentially is without the necessity of proof and without the necessity of reasoning. Reason toward the fact that something is alive. You recognize that it is alive. Its life is self-evident. When you put a seed in the ground and a few weeks later you've got a little leaf that pops up and you think, I wonder if, I wonder if that's, if that's the, uh, the seed. Well, the fact is you see a leaf there, you know something is there living. But eventually, give it some weeks, and you'll recognize, yep, that's, that's indeed that pepper plant. Life is self-evident. You see a plant that has broken ground. And as we are made alive in Christ, that new life is something that is self-evident. You recognize that something is the vital signs, so to speak, of the Christian life. The, we, we call them, uh, in philosophical terms, we call them the theological vir virtues. Faith, love, and hope. You might be thinking faith, hope, and love is what Paul said. Well, Paul uses this trio, this, this trinity of virtues three different times. The one we're most familiar with is in 1 Corinthians at the end of that chapter. And these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Um, but the love and then hope. I think the reason he does that is, uh, is uh, it is faith that brings us into the Christian life. It is hope that looks out ahead. So it's the end. But the substance of the Christian life is love. John Wesley uh, talked about the Christian life as a house. And on a house, you got a porch, you got a front door, you got the roof, those things. But the house itself is love. And God has given to us these three vital signs. We know that there's life, new life in Christ when we see a lively faith, when we see a passionate love. I'm not talking about just stirred emotions, but I'm talking about a genuine and, and constant love for God and love for one's neighbor. will see us through, even through death. God has not left us in this world without witness to the work that He's done. He offers us witness to the work that He's done in our lives through these vital signs. And so the fruit-bearing Christian life, is it's a life that is self-evident. But it's secondly a life that is characteristically Christian. Don't... don't that is characteristically Christian. It's not just a good life. 
It's not just the happy life. It's not just a contented life. We're not talking about stability. Though we all need a bit of stability. We're not talking about a peaceful life. We're talking about a characteristically Christian life. And by a characteristically Christian life, I want you to think it is a life, the characteristically Christian life is a life that is primarily Christian. I'm sorry if this uh, muddies the water of your politics a little bit, but you are not a Christian American. You are an American Christian. Christian is the primary definitive factor of a Christian life. Explaining what type of conservative or liberal we are. It's not an adjective that is used to explain what kind of um, you know, philosophy we might have. It is the primary means of defining the life that is in Christ. And so a characteristically Christian life is primarily Christian. It doesn't have a little bit of Christian religion tacked onto it. It is fundamentally initially and completely a Christian life. It is primarily You might be thinking, wait a minute, he means purposefully. I've, I've heard purposefully. Both words are, are real words. It is, it is a life that is intentionally Christian. If you're not Living an intentionally Christian life, you're not living the Christian life. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying certainly you're not living in the fullness of what God offers you. If, if I find myself not living a in Christ... But the Christian life is also purposefully Christian. It is guided and driven by its identity in Christ. It lives with a sense of purpose. Of hitting the mark. The characteristically Christian life is primarily Christian, purposely Christian, purposefully Christian, but it is also personally Christian. If our Christian faith does not get down deep into the very being of our personhood, then we are mere shells of Christians. The character is not simply a set of creeds, and you know I love the creeds. I sent, uh, I, in fact, this week I, I had the radio on, and 
Eric Erickson comes on the radio, and, and I'm getting ready actually to go uh, Thursday night to hang out with the, the young adults at the Daily Grind and have our small group there. And um, I, I, the computer's up, and I'm running about in the, in the, in the bedroom, and um, he, he, makes a, he makes a comment, and I thought, ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write him on Twitter. And so I go, and I... And I Uh, on our site that has the Nicene Creed on there, and um, and he replies, and then they actually started following me on Twitter. <laughs> so I'm not saying I'm not besmirching the creeds, besmirching Orthodox. I'm not besmirching, you know, being holding to the the, the, the elemental truths of Scripture. I'm not besmirching, you know, a, a, a belief that this is God's inerrant word to me. But all of that is the external. The question is, are we primarily, purposely, purposefully, and personally Christian? Has our Christian faith invaded our souls to the extent that we are Christian people? Not just we hold to Christian beliefs. Not just that we have certain Christian biases. But are we ourselves Characteristically Christian. The fruit-bearing Christian life is a life that is self-evident. It's a life that is characteristically Christian. Because the fruit-bearing Christian life is... Oh, and God offers to us signs of spiritual health. Sorry, I mentioned to you the vital signs of Christian life, that there is life. But these are the vital the, the signs that spiritual health going on um, we call them the fruit of the Spirit because that's what Paul called them when he was writing to the Galatians. And he gave us nine. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self, uh, gentleness, and self-control. We put those into a nice catchy song for the kids. But these are not, these are not platitudes for us. These are not uh, just trite ideals that God would have us to, you know, maybe if we have time in our lives to pursue. These are the signs of spiritual health because the fruit of the Spirit is being worked out in our lives. This is evidence that, that we are yielding ourselves to the Spirit's work, that we are making ourselves open to Him, that we are offering ourselves to Him, and He's putting His character, the character of God in us, the fruit of the Spirit. It's um, it would do us do us well to evaluate our lives according to these these fruit. Perhaps we'd say, you know what, I'm I'm fairly healthy, but I'm I'm not um, I don't have the most patience. I find myself struggling with self-control. Man, I don't think I'm very joyful. I, I, I genuinely love other people. You know, I'm, I have peace in my heart. But do other people see joy in me? Is there that, and I'm not talking about just a, a, a smile on the face. Is there a deep-seated 
passionate joy for life. We ought to evaluate the health of our spiritual lives according to this fruit. Because God has given just this list. God has given to us a list such as this so that we might evaluate our lives to see are we characteristically Christian? Or do we just hold to a particular set of beliefs? Fruit-bearing Christian life It's self-evident, it's characteristically Christian, but it's also a life that is... Um, If you'll bear with me, I want to shake your assumptions just for a moment. It won't hurt, might leave you a little bit theologically dizzy. But think of this. The purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of Jesus becoming one of us, the purpose of Christmas, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the purpose of that is not to get us to heaven. The purpose of that is to renew God's image in us. God became man so that man can become like God. He did not become man just so that man can get a pass. He did not... He created us in His image. He breathed His life-giving breath into us. And we have fallen from that image, but He will not leave us alone. The reason Christ gave His life for us is so that He can share His life with us. As Paul said, any man that is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old has passed away and all things have become. It's bigger than that. It's more than that. The scriptures call us to yield ourselves to the perfect love of God. In fact, Paul writing to the Colossians told us, urged us to put on love, and he called it the bond of perfection. It is what together as God's people. When Jesus, he when Jesus said to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, he said that we are to love even our enemies. When he was pushed, what's the greatest of the commands? His his response was not, well, don't kill people. That ought to be a no-brainer. 
We, we ought to, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that he doesn't quote one of the ten. You know, the, the, I think it was the scribes or the lawyers that came to him and said, you know, what's the greatest command? Got to be one of those, right? Well, no, those are no-brainers. Don't kill people. Leave another guy's wife alone. I mean, those are no-brainers. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Oh, and by the way, and you shall love your neighbor just as you love yourself. You can't separate those two because the second one is just like the first one. life with us so that we can have the perfect work of love within our hearts far 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 too often our theology is too low it is too small it is too weak it is too intimidating God can't expect much from me you've seen the bumper stickers don't look at me You think you're perfect? Try walking on water. I can't walk on water. All of those well-intentioned bumper sticker statements of Christian faith are inherently limited. You can't, number one, you can't summarize uh, a theology that big on something that small with that few words. But for the origin of those statements too low, too small, too weak, and too intimidated. God's work in us God's desire for us as His people. The fruit that He wants to bear in our lives is the fruit of love that is characteristically Christian because He has given us life in His Son Jesus. On the back of your community, that I think are quite appropriate. They're on the back of your communication cards, which I want to ask you to drop off in the offering plate at the back of the sanctuary. And you have them at, on the back of your bulletin. I want to ask you to hang on to your bulletin throughout the week. Um, it'll help you with the way, in the way of announcements. Remember what's been announced. Remember, hey, we got church camp coming up. Be praying for it. It'll remind you of the service and the, the scriptures we've read and the songs we've sung. Maybe some of us who would say, you know what, I, the Christian life for me is just kind of, it's just, it's not really been life, it's just kind of, Christianity for me has just been a set of beliefs. It's just been a you know a particular um, particular orthodoxy. 
but I want to know that I have life in Christ. I wonder if you would be honest and Perhaps you recognize that you've been 